You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We'll get to those stories in a moment. But first, we start with breaking news. A rescue underway in the North Shore backcountry after a Class 2 avalanche wiped out a group of skiers, seriously injuring one of them. Our Catherine Urquhart is live with more. And Catherine, this is a real challenge for rescuers. Yeah, Mikey certainly has. This skier suffered a broken femur. Well, Chris, a major rescue effort is underway here following a Category 2 avalanche in the backcountry of Mount Seymour Provincial Park. It happened at about 12.30 near First Pump Peak. A 37-year-old man who was skiing out of bounds was swept several hundred meters into a tree and he broke his femur. Now, North Shore Rescue had hoped to take him out by air, but it was just too foggy. Here is Peter Haig with North Shore Rescue. Uh, well, we do have about uh, over 20 people in the field at the moment, and they are carrying him or sliding him out at the moment. They had to do a bit of a rope rescue uh, down a very steep slope, so uh, they've lowered him down, and I think they're on the trail now. And uh, it's a matter of getting manpower in to, uh, to pull him along the trail. Uh, and then there's quite a steep hill to come out uh, before we can get to this, the toboggans. The toboggans, we can't get them in any further than uh, Brockton Point. A warning for people? The warning is uh, there's uh, avalanches out there at the moment. It's highly dangerous. Now, across the south coast, the risk of an avalanche is considerable in the backcountry. People well advised to stay out of the backcountry. Now, BC Ambulance is here waiting for the 37-year-old man who was injured, who has a broken femur, probably lucky to be alive. Chris, back to you. All right. Thanks very much, Catherine. Wishing them good luck with the remainder of the rescue. And some breaking details of an arrest in connection with a murder in Stanley Park dating back almost a year ago. Our Aaron MacArthur is live with the latest information from that location. Aaron, the victim's body was found on the seawall back in February. What are we learning about the man arrested? Yeah, Chris, the man arrested is 29-year-old Tyler Anthony Laja Modier. He's been charged with first-degree murder in the death of 61-year-old Lubomir Kunik. As you mentioned, Kunik's body was found on the seawall between 2nd and 3rd Beach on February 1st last year. Our VPD at the time said it was a random murder. There was nothing in Kunick's background to suggest that he was warranted of foul play. And that bore itself out this, this week with Lajimodier's arrest. VPD saying the two men did not know each other. The 29-year-old has an extensive criminal record that includes break and enter and weapons charges. But there's nothing in Kunick's background to suggest the two men knew each other or that foul play was warranted. Kunick's friends, who we spoke with this afternoon, relieved that there was a charge laid this week. Yeah, despite all of that information, Aaron, uh, we know the charge laid here is first degree. Any indication of why that's true? Yeah, that's the big mystery in all of this, Chris. First degree murder, a very specific charge with very specific circumstances, you know, premeditated murder or murders that involve sexual assault fall under that first degree murder. It also has a higher uh, threshold of, of proof than other homicide charges as well. The VPD will have a, a press conference tomorrow with more details, we hope, but in their release today said that there was strong forensic evidence that linked the suspect to the crime scene and Crown Counsel today as well saying that there is a strong likelihood of conviction on this first-degree murder charge. Back to you. All right. Thanks very much, Aaron MacArthur, reporting in Vancouver for us. 
Gangster Jamie Bacon is going to stay in prison as he awaits trial on a charge of counseling the murder of an individual. A judge denying his bail request today. Grace Key was there for the judge's decision and has the surprising reaction from family of one of the innocent victims in the Surrey Six slayings. Heavy police presence at Supreme Court in downtown Vancouver. Armed officers here for notorious Red Scorpion gangster Jamie Bacon. A judge denying him bail pending his trial in April. Because of a publication ban, the reason for the judge's decision cannot be released. We've had enough bloodshed um, in the community and this will stop uh, um, one from happening and it will keep our... A community safe. Uh, it will keep Mr. Bacon safe. Eileen Mohan's son Christopher, along with Ed Schillenberg, were two innocent bystanders killed in the infamous Surrey Six slayings back in 2007. Last month, the murder and conspiracy charges against Bacon were stayed. Most of the reasoning behind the decision are sealed. Bacon was not released from jail because he still faces charges in a separate case. One count of counseling someone to commit murder on a former associate back in 2008. At the bail hearing, Bacon smiled at his parents who sat in the front row. He's become a very hard, become a very hard criminal and I feel sorry for him. I, I literally do and, and I feel sorry for his parents to, who should have had the opportunity to look after the children and somehow lost grip. As for the stay of charge, it wasn't. Me hope that, you know, for that decision. It gave me hope that, you know, for a better tomorrow and maybe I will see justice uh, for Christopher um, in the future days. Bacon's trial on the charges of counseling to commit murder begins April 3rd. Grace Key, Global News. The B.C. parents of a teen who died in government care are withdrawing their lawsuit against the province. 15-year-old Nick Lang took his own life while in ministry care back in June 2015. His parents filed a lawsuit claiming a series of mistakes and a lack of attention cost their son his life. But today they issued a statement saying the suit was about making changes within the ministry and ensuring adequate resources for youth with mental health and addiction challenges. They say, quote, Since the B.C. NDP have become government, along with the support of the B.C. Greens, we have started to see enough progress that we were comfortable withdrawing the lawsuit. A horrifying experience now for a Victoria-area family. Yesterday, their three-year-old was jabbed by a used needle in a place they had every reason to feel safe. Neetu Garcha has more on where it happened and the warning from police. When a three-year-old started crying inside this McDonald's restaurant in downtown Victoria, the parents made a disturbing discovery. Their toddler had been pricked by a dirty needle. They were taken to hospital suffering non-life-threatening injuries, but... I'm sure traumatic for the child as well as the parents. The restaurant owner released a statement saying the incident is being taken very seriously and that the business has been in contact with the family and police. It's still unclear if the syringe carried a substance, but it was found in an area of the city known for high levels of drug use. I'm just horrified. Our Place Society, a charity that provides drop-in services for the homeless, says it will be ramping up routine checks for needles not discarded in safe disposal boxes and that this 
this is a sharp reminder of a bigger problem. My hope is that we use this as a, as a wake-up to just say we've got to get long-term treatment in our community to be able to uh, get the help that, that people need to get off of drugs. A number of incidents in downtown Victoria over the last year have triggered public warnings from Victoria Police. There was a syringe that was taped to a railing in a parkade last year as well as a syringe that was located in a parking meter dispenser. Um, so there was a couple last year. Something Elaine Ho knows all too well. In May, her daughter was pricked by a needle while on a field trip in Beacon Hill Park. They were playing some kind of a game and there was a, a needle that was right in the grass and she pricked herself. And I mean, really, it can be very scary for us. So we have to keep an eye on our kids that way. As investigators try to determine if the syringe inside this McDonald's was left behind with intent to injure, police are warning the public to be careful, especially those with young children. Living in the reality of the world that we do, uh, you've got to be, you know, the best caregiver you can be. Need to Garcha, Global News, Victoria. Some strong reaction tonight to video Global News showed you exclusively last night of illegal ride-sharing services up and running in Richmond. The committee of MLA is currently discussing ride-hailing in Metro Vancouver, weighing in on what should be done about those who are breaking the rules. Tanya Beja has their reaction, as well as questions about why the process is taking so long. Drivers for at least seven rideshare companies are hitting the road illegally in the Lower Mainland. Legislators say it's time to crack down. Clearly the minimum fine that they have to pay if they get caught is not enough. Uh, and uh, what we've heard clearly in this committee is that it needs to be beefed up. It should be maybe 1500 bucks, and the second time your car is impounded. That'll quickly, quickly put an end to uh, non-regulated <coughs> ride-hailing going on. You can see Kabu. Yeah. Global News and tried using the GoCabu app yesterday. Here's what happened when the driver pulled up. Hey, niha, niha, niha. He said the, uh, the drivers at the company who is running the app uh, asked them not to take any Westerner or, say, non-Chinese riders. In a statement, the company says it has no policy against accepting non-Chinese passengers. However, since the app is only available in the Chinese language and not all drivers are fluent in English, to reduce frustration in communication and riding experience, it's an option for drivers not to take non-Chinese speaking customers based on the driver's own decision. Well, I think the fact that there's ride-sharing already on the road today, just only if you speak a certain language, already is indicative of the fact that regulators need to move now. And Liberal MLA say there's no reason for the NDP to delay. We know people want ride-sharing, so let's get on with it. Yes, we can put the framework together, but it can be introduced to the next session, and it can be voted on, and we can have ride-sharing by the summer. And I appreciate people want a certain ride-hailing company right away, uh, but we want to make sure it gets right done right. So how soon? Uh, I, I can't give an exact timeline because I'm not aware. The ministry might have that answer. The Legislative Committee's recommendations on ride-sharing are due mid-February. It could be many months before drivers hit the road. Tanya Beja, Global News. Keith Baldry joins us now from Victoria. Keith, a lot of people always wonder what kind of influence the taxi industry has mm -hmm. here. So if money does talk, what sort of donations 
uh, have we seen from the taxi industry into BC politics? Yeah, it's been around uh, for some time, Chris. It's uh, and it's a significant amount of money. The taxi industry is a, is a, a powerful lobby on both municipal and provincial governments. Here's the dollars what we're talking about from elections BC from the year 2012 to 2016. We haven't got uh, last year's numbers in yet, but it is considerable. Eighty-nine thousand dollars going to the BC Liberal Party from the taxi various taxi companies in eighty-four thousand. Pardon me, uh, and uh, in, in, in Metro Vancouver, also the NDP getting its share as well, a little more than $59,000. Uh, so both the industry seems to be playing both sides of the fence here, uh, sort of hedging their bets who's going to form government uh, by giving considerable amounts of money to both parties over the years. Now, that's, that was then. This is now. The good news is, if, depending on how you look at it, this can no longer continue because corporate donations have now been banned in this province. So the taxi industry is losing a major part of its leverage on governments in the past and are bound to have an impact on Uber coming into, uh, into B.C. because the taxis have lost a bit of leverage here. Certainly looks like it. All right. Thanks very much, Keith. All right. Increasingly, home buyers looking for a little more space at a more affordable price tag have been taking their search to the suburbs. Problem is, they're having to look further and further east. Ted Chernecki has a look at the million-dollar sprawl and how it impacts your options. Housing starts right across Canada hit their highest level in a decade, and B.C. was no exception. We just keep digging ourselves into the unaffordable abyss. And that's because in the Lower Mainland, despite what you see, we are not building enough. Demand is way higher than supply. Currently, it's at record lows. Uh, there are just over 50 units that are completed and unsold and available on the market in Vancouver, and that's for a city of 2.5 million people. 50? Yes, it's not many. <laughs> so as a result, when it comes to the single-family home, the million-dollar club now extends throughout most of the Fraser Valley. SFU has studied BC assessment data from 2014 onwards, and you see all that red represents single-family homes assessed at more than a million dollars. The regional speed of how single detached homes have gone over a million dollars, that in 2014 it was about 24%, but then when we come into 2018, just four years, we're talking about 73% of single detached homes that are now over a million dollars. Lower mainland housing is now so unaffordable, bears no correlation to annual incomes, that newcomers are now forced to rent. So we've seen uh, rental apartment construction increase from about 2,000 uh, units under construction at a given time in 2014 to about 8,000 units today. People are choosing not to buy, they are choosing to rent instead. The CMHE is predicting a small slowdown in housing starts in 2018 as tighter lending rules and possibly higher interest rates kick in. But that's the prediction for the rest of the country. In B.C., there's always that foreign ownership wild card and what impact it's having on real estate here. Ted Chernecki, Global News. A Surrey woman says she's living a nightmare thanks to social media and a case of mistaken identity. As John Waugh reports, her ordeal began right after RCMP busted an alleged drug operation. Drugs, guns, and an ongoing gang war. I was um, actually scared for my life. Not something Shastina Kumar ever thought she'd get wrapped up in, let alone being singled out as a main perpetrator. Random people I've never met before and calling me names, um, really bad names, and... Um, saying that I owe them money. Well, a simple online search tells the story of Shastina Srinakumar of Surrey facing drug and gun charges. Social media found Surrey's other Shastina, whose middle name is Sashi. Complaints even made to the radio station where she works. And my boss has been getting some 
really um, threatening stuff like, oh, you're hiring people like her. But it was a total misunderstanding. The station manager having to post a clarification on Twitter. Social media experts say cases of mistaken identity like this becoming more common. Your phone is exploding with notifications. People are saying the worst of the worst to you. Uh, I can only imagine what that feels like for an individual. Imagine being the Canadian model who last May was mistaken for the sister of the suicide bomber in the deadly Manchester attack. People saying this is what's going on. Are you the terrorist? Even the tragic story of Coquitlam's Amanda Todd, driven to suicide because of cyberbullying, pushing someone with the same name in the United States to post a video asking for the support messages to stop. We have a whole group of people on the, on the internet who use that tool to find a story and, and just go with it. You have to do your due diligence. For now, this Shastina Kumar adding her middle name to her online profiles. Do your research before you, you go and, and hurt someone. Hoping any future notoriety is a result of her own positive actions. John Hua, Global News. A long swath of green space about to be paved, connecting Guildford with Surrey City Centre. It's a beautiful park in the middle of the city that deserves to stay exactly where it is in exactly the pristine condition that it's in. We don't need a road. 20 minutes ago we were allowed to walk through. Now we're not. Tempers stay in check, a tense situation the city knew was coming as they repeat the virtues of the project. It's claimed to be a multi-million dollar improvement to the park. There will be a net increase of one acre in Hawthorne Park. As well, there will be an additional 200 trees added to the park, uh, as well as the many amenities, including a new playground and wetland facility. I'll be dead before the trees they plant today will produce the same environmental protection. This is part of Surrey's slow, relentless march towards a light rail line down 104th Ave. The new road through the park, another option for vehicles in an area that will grow significantly. Opponents are taking a little pride in the tiny delay they're responsible for. We've held them off for a little bit more. They were supposed to do this yesterday, so they were delayed a day. And while the chainsaws are buzzing and the protesters do see this as a defeat, they haven't given up yet. They're going to take this to other levels of court beyond the one that has denied them what they're seeking so far. They're also planning on going beyond the city of Surrey and talking to other levels of government. This part of the park will be paved in about six months. Jeff Hastings, Global News. New information shows there is a way to protect whales in areas with a lot of marine traffic, like the B.C. coast, for instance, without negatively impacting tourism. Linda Aylesworth reports on the encouraging results from boating restrictions already adopted in the U.S. Now all B.C. has to do is catch up. The protection that endangered southern resident killer whales get depends on what side of the border they're on. On the Canadian side, there are no regulations as to how close boaters can get, just guidelines encouraging them to keep 100 metres away. It used to be the same on the U.S. side, until 2011. So we adopted uh, a distance regulation of staying at least 200 yards away for the southern resident killer whales and also staying out of their path. That's twice the distance, and it's not a suggestion. It's the law. Because whale researchers observed disturbing behaviors when boats were around. They spend less time actually foraging, hunting, and eating, and more time moving around, essentially trying to find a quiet place where they can do their thing. 
But a recent report by the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, shows that the regulations are having a positive effect. The increase in, in minimum approach distance to 200 yards in the United States has had a it's had quite a significant impact on, on boater behavior, so it's been a good thing, I think. In cross-border discussions, NOAA has voiced its hope that Canada will follow suit. It would really help uh, to have consistent rules on both sides of the borders. The federal government's response? A minimum 100-meter approach distance for most whales, porpoises and dolphins will be put forward in upcoming proposed regulatory amendments. The Department of Fisheries and Oceans is also considering doubling the approach distance to 200 meters for southern resident killer whales. People like myself are pretty excited about this. We've been waiting for it for over 10 years. I hear that they're supposed to be brought forward and, and passed soon, but I don't really know what soon means. With only 76 southern residents left, there's no time to waste. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. A 14-year-old girl pulled from what could have been a muddy grave if not for search and rescue crews looking for survivors of California's latest natural disaster. Floodwaters from torrential rains are washing debris down hills and into communities that were burned out by last month's wildfires. At least 13 people so far have died. This is the life and death struggle playing out tonight. Rescue teams in Santa Barbara County carving deep into a mangled mess, a home buried under mud to reach a 14-year-old trapped inside. Hey, come out. Using the jaws of life, they reach her. She's been alone for six hours. Lauren Canton plucked from the rising mud and debris. I told my friend, my phone got wrecked. A miracle rescue, just in time. It was so hard to hear her. You know, we could have very easily just taken two more steps and we wouldn't have been able to hear her at all. We got a mudslide right now. It happens so fast. Rivers of mud pouring into communities. Hills crumbling. Dozens reported missing. All day long, daring rescue efforts. Wading through thigh-high mud with search dogs, first responders are desperate to find survivors. While checking on their neighbors, the Johnsons heard a cry. It's not a little baby. I don't know where it came from. We got it out, got the mud out of its mouth. I'm hoping it's okay. Rescue helicopters hoisting more than 50 to safety, where ambulances couldn't get in. I went to step out and the mud came all the way up to my knees. 30 miles of Highway 101 shut down near Santa Barbara. Some first responders needed rescue themselves. Thousands ordered to evacuate in the hills that just weeks ago burned. The largest inferno in state history obliterated more than a thousand homes. Where there was fire, there's now floods and mud. And a different kind of extreme weather turning parking lots into works of art in a German mountain community close to the Czech border. Frigid winds and low temperatures leaving a thick coating of ice on vehicles, road signs and trees. Beautiful to look at unless, of course, you're the owner of one of the vehicles entirely encased in ice. The unusual cold weather in the southeastern United States is forcing some local wildlife to take drastic measures to survive. 
Alligators in a North Carolina park have gone into hibernation and are poking their snouts out through the ice so they can breathe. The gators can lower their body temperature and slow their metabolism, allowing them to survive. They will stay like this until the water warms up. Well, after a spate of saber-rattling with the U.S., North Korea has made what would appear to be something of a breakthrough in relations with South Korea. The two rivals moving towards easing their bitter animosity in part through the Olympic Games. Kim Jong-un's men walking towards their enemy across the most dangerous border in the world to a remarkable moment, a handshake with South Korean officials and with history. A meeting unthinkable weeks ago, hours of talks and at the end, agreement. North Korea will send a large team to next month's Olympics in South Korea. The two sides have re-established a second hotline for the military. And amid missile launches and nuclear tests, they've agreed military talks to reduce tension. The talks beyond this checkpoint may have started successfully, but they've a long way to go from figure skating to tough talk about nuclear missiles or anything else. South Korea today called on the North to get rid of its nuclear weapons. Kim Jong-un's man didn't respond, but later said its nuclear weapons are aimed at the US, not at South Korea. Kim says a former South Korean foreign minister is trying to split America from its ally. We should never trust him, but that doesn't mean that we don't deal with him. Prince Harry and fiancé Meghan Markle attracted cheering crowds at their first public appearance of 2018. The couple toured a London radio station that supports young people hoping to enter the music industry. Markle waved to the crowd and at times appeared slightly surprised and overwhelmed by the enthusiastic reception. Harry and Meghan are also, of course, planning their May 19th wedding. Actor James Franco is the latest high-profile Hollywood figure to be accused of sexual misconduct. As Global's Jamie Maraca reports, the new accusations came just a day after Franco won an award at the Golden Globes. And a warning, this report contains some sexually explicit language. And the Golden Globe goes to James Franco. As James Franco accepted his award for Best Actor, grinning from ear to ear, there were some women who weren't so happy to see the 39-year-old disaster artist star take the stage, especially on a night dedicated to putting a halt on harassment in Hollywood. Actress Violet Paley took to social media tweeting, Cute time's up pin, James Franco. Remember the time you pushed my head down in a car towards your exposed penis? And that other time you told my friend to come to your hotel when she was 17? After you had already been caught doing that to a different 17-year-old? Paley was referring to these leaked social media chats from 2014. The messages show Franco allegedly attempting to engage with then 17-year-old Lucy Claude. Franco later addressed the messages on live with Kelly and Michael. uh, You know, I'm embarrassed and I, uh, I guess I'm just a model of, you know, how social media is tricky. As for Paley, she admits she did have a consensual relationship with Franco as an adult, but says the particular incident she tweeted about was against her will. And there were others infuriated to see Franco touting a Time's Up pin at the Globes. Sarah Tither-Kaplan, a former acting student of Franco's school, Studio 4, wrote, 
Remember a few weeks ago when you told me the full nudity you had me do in two of your movies for $100 a day wasn't exploitative because I signed a contract to do it? Time's up on that. Studio 4 closed its doors permanently in October without explanation. Meantime this morning, Paley tweeted that Franco reportedly reached out to her and other women with apologies. A story she says has gone unaccepted. Jamie Marocker, Global News. In health matters tonight, a new study out of Denmark links high or long-term high ibuprofen use with male infertility. Researchers gave healthy young men 600 milligrams of ibuprofen twice a day. They say within weeks, the painkiller disrupted the men's natural production of testosterone. It also led to hormonal imbalances. The good news is the effect was mild and it was temporary. Mobbed by lemurs and it gets worse from here. A British reporter's too close encounter at the zoo coming up right after the forecast. Due to the miracle of technology, Wes Luong joins us all the way from Kelowna this evening with the forecast. Filling in for Christy. That's right. How you doing? I'm well, thanks very much. Yes, hopefully Christy gets better for tomorrow. Uh, lots of things to talk about across British Columbia, especially for Thursday. And we'll talk about why coming up in just a second. Thanks, Chris. Uh, we'll take a look at the satellite to start, uh, where we are seeing much cooler conditions for the northern half of British Columbia. In fact, an Arctic front that is over the central parts of British Columbia has split this province up into two. So clear and cold tomorrow for the northern half, but the southern half of British Columbia, we are going to see clouds and even some showers moving in uh, for the south coast, as you can see here on the future cast. Uh, but as we get into Thursday, that's when we will start to see this next uh, significant system pushing inland. And as a result, if you are planning to travel on the mountain passes uh, later on in this week, Thursday is going to be quite dicey. You might want to uh, maybe even consider changing some of your travel plans. Here's a look at what you can expect for tomorrow for the northern half of the province, where temperatures, again, it is going to stay cool with uh, minus uh, 26 tomorrow in Dees Lake. But again, we will see cooling and clearing. Uh, now with the wind chill, a little bit of wind uh, with temperatures uh, so far below freezing, it will feel uh, like closer to minus 30 or minus 40 in some areas. The southern half of the province, uh, this is what you can expect tomorrow. Uh, now fingers crossed, we could maybe even see some breaks here in uh, the Okanagan Valley. Uh, again, nothing significant until later in the day on Wednesday. In fact, Wednesday overnight and into Thursday, that's when we will start to see the next wave move in. Here's a look at what you can expect for the south coast uh, for tomorrow. Temperatures staying above freezing here, but freezing levels will be around anywhere between 800 meters to 1,000 meters, so at least uh, the ski resorts on the south coast will be getting some snow, but uh, at uh, sea level, uh, things will stay above freezing. Here's a look in the next five days for the metro Vancouver area, so drier and brighter this weekend. Until then, we will see showers to start on Wednesday in the morning for the city, but then we will start to see the showers increase to rain overnight Wednesday and into Thursday. It will be quite a wet one on Thursday. And again, remember, if you are planning to travel on the mountain passes, Thursday is going to be very tricky with lots of snow for higher elevations. As we head into Friday, things will start to clear out. And then, Chris, we will see some sunshine for Metro Vancouver for the weekend. Can't wait for that. Got a little glimpse of it today, but uh, can't wait for more on the weekend. Thanks very much, Wesla. A British reporter is going viral with his attempt at a report from the Bantam Zoo in the UK, thanks to a group of lemurs that conspired to make it just a little difficult. And I'm at one of the region's zoos where they're doing that annual stock take of animals. 
Alex Dunlop was reporting on the zoo's animal count when the lemurs started jumping on him. They seemed to be particularly interested in the treats he had in his hands. He was mobbed by the animals, sustaining some minor injuries and necessitating a few bleeps as well. Ow! You little Lovely with the tight... Oh... Dunlop later tweeted, no lemurs were hurt in the making of this movie. By the way, the correct term for a group of lemurs is appropriately a conspiracy. An unusual call out for rescue crews in North Carolina after a farmer noticed his cows acting strangely. All the cows was over on the side, looking down there, and I know that wasn't like them. Turns out, Julie, a 450-kilogram cow, was stuck neck deep in a pond. Fire crews took turns smashing the ice out around her, switching out often to prevent hypothermia and exhaustion. Finally, they used a chainsaw to break the remaining ice. And they got her on the ice, and then they slid her right on out the ice. Julie was reunited with her family, and by all accounts, she is okay. Squire's back with a look at sports. Yeah, we'll talk about the Canucks, who have just finished up another road game and another road game that didn't go so well. But Uh-oh. were we surprised? Uh, before we go any further with tonight's Canucks-Capitals game, I know the good start in October had many fans hoping for playoffs. And let's admit it, playoff hockey in Vancouver is always fun. But if the Canucks miss the playoffs again and they get once again in the draft lottery, that's not such a bad thing. They have more future prospects. Nikolai Godobin, when he was 11 years old, got the autograph of that guy. Alex Ovechkin, first time he's ever played against his hero. First goal was a two-man advantage goal for the Canucks. It was actually an Alex Edler shot tipped in by Daniel Sedin. Swede to Swede. And it's 1-0 for the Canucks. But that's the only goal Vancouver would get in this game. Here's a weird goal. The net is up, but it's not off its pegs. Michael Delzato helps put it back on, but while he's doing that, John Carlson takes a shot, and clearly Markstrom is confused and a bit blocked out, and it's in the net, and it's 1-1. Good goal. It's not off the pegs. Okay, this goal right through Ben Hutton, and then right through Markstrom. Lars Eller, 2-1. Another odd goal. Evgeny Kuznetskov's shot is stopped, but it's actually Eric Goodbranson's hand trying to swat the puck away that swats it in. 3-1 now for Washington. Now the Capitals had umpteen chances to score more. Markson was actually pretty good in the second period. 3-1 the final. Capitals over Canucks. If you were in an occupation where your face was constantly in danger of being damaged or injured, would you wear a contraption to fully protect your face, not just your eyes, but all of your face. Most people, of course, would say, yes, I would wear full protection. But most people don't play in the National Hockey League. And in the NHL, the answer to that question would be no. Morgan Riley with a quick shot, blocked in front of the net, Tanev's down and hurt. It may only be an inch thick and weigh all of six, all of six ounces, but nothing drops a hockey player faster 
or inflicts more damage than a hockey puck. Chris Tanev, the latest Canuck to feel the vicious wrath of the frozen rubber disc. Tanev losing seven teeth and will need oral surgery to repair the significant damage to his mouth and gums. But that one got him right off his own stick, right into surgery to repair the significant damage to his mouth and gums. But that one got him right off his own stick, right into his face. Of course, there's an obvious solution to having your teammate pick up your teeth and avoiding these nasty injuries to the face. It just doesn't happen until after a player suffers that serious facial injury. Sven Berchi's kind of sporting it now. The full face shield or cage. Berchi's wearing one to protect his healing jaw, which was broken by a puck. Except players avoid wearing the full face shield, even though everybody wore one as a child, and a lot just wore them a few years ago when they are playing college hockey. Except here at the NHL level, nobody wears it. I don't know. Um, just the way the game is. I mean, you know, I think that's that's part of you know playing in the NHL. It's part of playing uh, professional hockey, I think. I mean, I went from wearing a visor uh, in juniors to uh, wearing a cage in college, and I guess it's just, it's just part of the of the league, I guess, and then once you're allowed to, to wear the visor or take it off, they, uh, you do it right away. I don't know if it's for the swag points or, or what it's for, but... Uh... Decades ago, this was the proud look of a hockey player, and nobody wore it better than Bobby Clark. Losing teeth was an NHL badge of honor. Surprisingly, though, little has changed since then when it comes to full facial protection. Yes, all players now wear helmets, and of the 640 present NHL skaters, all but 34 wear a visor, yet there's still a full-on resistance to shielding up completely. I think it's just kind of an unwritten rule. You don't wear a cage when you get to this level. Um, if you don't play college, you don't wear a cage really ever, uh, unless you're a minor hockey. But, uh, you know, it sounds weird, but it's easier to play without a cage. As well as the... And it also helps you lose teeth. Uh, they named some of the Canadian Olympic snowboard team today, the ones in big air and slope style. Seven athletes featuring Regina's Mark McMorris and one BC member. And that is Spencer O'Brien, born in Alert Bay, grew up in Courtney, an X Games legend. Six X Games medals, the first woman ever to do a backside 900 and slope style competition. One gold in the world championship in 2013, 12th in slope style during the last Olympics. Although during those Olympics, she was battling arthritis, and apparently that's more under control now. So there you go. Good thing. All right. Thanks very much. You're Claire. welcome. Here's a look at today's snow report. Fresh snow on all the mountains in the last 24 hours. 10 centimeters of new at Whistler Blackcomb, 5 at Grouse, 2 at Cypress, 7 Sasquatch. Revelstoke reporting 22 new centimeters of snow, Manning Park 8 and Powder King 32. In the southern interior, 20 centimeters at Big White, 10 Silver Star, 11 Sun Peaks, 2 at Apex, and bases in the southern interior between 135 and 176 centimeters. Coming up on ET Canada, watch out, Oprah for President is gaining momentum, plus the hilarious cast of Schitt's Creek joins us in our studio. That's coming up at 7, right after the news hour. Back to you, Chris. All right, Paul, thank you very much. A Toronto professor is now a best-selling author for a book he wrote 10 years ago. The title happens to be very similar to a new book exposing the fire and fury in the Donald Trump White House. Tom Hayes explains. It's a comparison he never thought would be made. No, not, not in a million years. Randall Hansen, University of Toronto professor, and Donald Trump, President of the United States, who has been reeling since the release of the not-so-flattering book, 
Fire and Fury by Michael Wolf. Professor Hansen likes the title. After all, that's what he called his book 10 years ago. An old book that's making a comeback. Copenhagen from Seoul, uh, from Berlin, from Dusseldorf, New York's been in touch, London's been in touch. Randall Hansen is a professor here at the Monk School of Global Affairs. His Fire and Fury book is about the consequences of military bombing during World War II, not presidential politics. But now he's a bestseller, thanks to Google. And Amazon, where you can easily find the Trump Fire and Fury. And right below, Professor Hansen's Fire and Fury. A few wrong clicks and Professor Hansen is suddenly connected to President Trump. And he says there's more of a connection between the two. Well, the way it was used by Wolf, it refers to Trump threatening to rain fire and fury down on North Korea. Well, my book outlines what fire and fury looks like uh, f for children, for, for women, for men. Professor Hansen's Fire and Fury sold 15,000 copies 10 years ago when social media wasn't much help. Today, Twitter has helped carry this story around the world. The professor is also hoping it shines a bigger spotlight on a president he's not impressed with. When we have this unstable demagogue operating the world's greatest army, this warmongerer, that people are thinking about my book, which outlines in some detail, I think, the utter horrors of war. Tom Hayes, Global News. I don't know, maybe Michael Wolf should get a cut. He's selling a lot more books. <laughs> it's working out for this it's guy. Working out for him. 300,000 copies in the first week was what uh, Hillary Clinton's What Happened did. Still waiting to see if this one breaks that record. Thanks very much for watching. Have a good night.